Good evening. How are you doing, Mike? Good to see everybody. Good to see you, William. All right, let's let's begin this evening with O oh Master, let me walk with thee. Sing all three stanzas. We're so thankful that we can come this evening to worship you, to sing praises to you, Lord. Help us to focus this evening on, on the songs that we sing and let them come from our heart, Lord. Lord, help us to focus on the, the lesson that is being brought this evening. Help us to apply it to our lives and help us to extend that outside of these doors to the rest of the world. Lord, please be with those that are sick at this time, that need your healing hand, Lord, that need your comfort. Lord, we're thankful for your son that you sent to, to die on the cross and with that sacrifice gave us the, the opportunity to be in heaven with you. Lord, go with us to the rest of this evening and help us to, to focus. It's in your son's name. Amen. Now, before we partake of the memorial, remembering our Savior's sacrifice and his love for us, let's sing, By Christ Redeemed. <clears throat> 
by Christ. Jesus. We're thankful for the plan that was laid early a long time ago that that he would come and that, that he would die for us that we might have a way back to you. We're thankful for all the preparations that, that you made and we're thankful for that it was all recorded that, that we would be, be able to see clearly that, that he was the Christ. As we partake of this bread we, we pray that as it represents his body that we'll do so in a manner pleasing unto you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Shall we pray? Continuing our thanks, Father, we're thankful for the blood that was shed on the cross. We're, we're thankful for the power that's in the blood. We're, we're thankful that that Jesus was willing to come and, and give up his blood as the sacrifice. We pray, Father, that, that this fruit of the vine that represents that blood will be a, a remembrance unto him. In Christ's name, amen. Our God and our Father, we know that you bless us every day. We know that you take care of us. We know that every good thing comes that we have comes from you. And at this time, we want to give back a portion of that so that the church here can continue to grow and that we might continue to be a, a light here in, in Titusville. In Christ's name, amen. Okay.
If you'd like to mark your songbook, the invitation song will be 612, His Yoke is Easy. Now, before Kevin brings our lesson, Doug, are you going to do a, an intro? I'll do it Okay. Um, before Kevin brings our lesson, let's stand, if you're able, and sing Seeking the Lost. <clears throat> Seeking the lost Tonight's guest speaker is Kevin Patterson. He comes from the uh, Sebring Parkway Church of Christ, and Sebring is in the center of the south, and you go till you run out of town. And that's about where you're at, right? So uh, Kevin's been there for a while. He uh, not only serves as their pulpit minister, but he is also one of their elders there. Um, Kevin's been in the business for, he's been the pulpit minister like 25 years, right? And he's been uh, married to Sherry for 30. So 
That's a long time. So, uh, Kevin also uh, teaches the Florida School of Preaching. He, one of the classes he teaches is uh, prep and delivery for sermons to teach preachers how to preach. And I also know that he teaches um, Fishers of Men, which is an evangelism, teaching, this, teaching people how to evangelize. Uh, Kevin has made the, the offer in the past to come over here and for a while and teach either Fishers of Men or Financial Peace at University, take an evening several weeks in a row and teach that for us if we're interested. And I think that offer still stands. That offer still stands, so that's always a good thing. So there's opportunities for us. Um, Kevin and Camille uh, grew up together, if you don't know. Kevin's dad was a preacher, and uh, he spent 12 years in the wonderful town of Henderson, Tennessee, within a one-stop-light town, I'm sure, right? It was a one-stop-light town, so they, uh, they grew up together, so they've known each other for a very long time. So we're uh, without more to do. Here's Kevin. Well, I appreciate that introduction. Very kind indeed. I appreciate the opportunity to be here and to speak to you tonight. I want to, above all things, congratulate Doug on his choice of wives. You can't get too much better. Now, I realize my wife, Sherry's sitting right there next to her, so I've got to lump them into the same good, positive category. But let me tell you something. We think very highly in my family of Camille McCaskill. I have to call her McCaskill in my family. They don't know Camille Hunter, but they know Camille McCaskill. And so when I was on my way over here, uh, I was talking to my mom on the phone in the car. She was talking to Sherry on the speakerphone, and... I let her know, I said, I'm going to the North Brevard congregation to speak tonight. And she knew nothing of the North Brevard congregation. I said, it's very close uh, to where the rockets launched, where we went when I was about 10 years old. She goes, well, I know that. And I said, it's where Camille McCaskill lives. And then she said, well, that's a good congregation because she's a good girl. <laughs> now, my mom probably hasn't seen Camille in about 35 years, but uh, she has good memories of her as well. So. It is indeed. It's a privilege and an honor to be able to be here with you uh, this evening. I'm glad we got in before the rain because as I'm looking out one of those back windows, it is pouring. So it's good to be in here in the, in the dry and in the air conditioning. You know, we took a little drive on our way over here, about 150 miles from my house to this church building. And I could have walked, but I would have never made it here in time. Might not have made it at all. Uh, but I wouldn't have made it here in time. In order for me to leave our morning assembly and the activities of the afternoon and get here on time in good shape, I had to be transported from point A to point B. I had to climb aboard a vehicle in order to do it. Now, my vehicle uh, is a little blue vehicle out front, and it gets really good gas mileage in these high-dollar times. But that vehicle is what allowed me to go from there to here, to make it from the Sebring Parkway congregation to the North Brevard congregation. And the reason I say that is because I think sometimes when we talk about the church, when we talk about the family of God, when we talk about the body of Christ, sometimes we look at it in certain ways which are good and true and biblical, but maybe we don't look at it at, from every angle we might need to to better understand its importance and to better understand its purpose in our lives. 
So what we're going to do this evening, we're going to take a look at a very simple topic and we're going to use the, the backdrop of a vehicle in order to understand the purpose of the church that belongs to Jesus. We're going to examine the Lord's church, the vehicle of our salvation. The Lord's church, the vehicle of our salvation. We're going to talk about how the church itself is what is going to help us go from point A to point B, from here to there. That was a part of God's design. That was a part of Jesus' sacrifice so that he could get us where we want to be and where we need to be for all eternity. Let's take a look at some points here. First and foremost, let's make sure that we cover some of the background material. If you take a look at Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, you're taking a look at a passage of Scripture that is probably familiar to most all of us. It's a passage that gets quoted a lot in the church because it's a significant passage. Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, the apostle Paul said to the church at Rome, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, he was not referencing in that passage of Scripture babies. He was not referencing in that passage of Scripture young people who are too young to be held accountable for their sin. But he was talking about the plurality of mankind in general. Those who are old enough to have sinned and old enough to whom God will hold accountable. And so all have sinned. That puts us all in the, the same boat. And Romans 6 and verse 23 tells us, For the wages of sin is death. The wages or the payoff, the price that we pay for that sin is death. If you were to take a look at another passage of Scripture, I'll just mention briefly James 2 and verse 10. It's a concept that says if, you've, if you can do everything right and you sin in just one area, you're guilty of it all. So it doesn't matter whether somebody sinned a million times or one time. They're, everybody's in the same boat. And that boat, according to Romans 6.23, is that we are lost. That we are deserving of punishment. There is no bigger sinner and lesser sinner, uh, better sinner and worse sinner. There is no, we're sinners. And sinners, according to the justice of God, deserve demise. They deserve to be cast out of the presence of God for all eternity. Well, that's the problem that we face. But let me also now take you to the solution. John 14 and verse 6. Jesus would say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Now, I want you to think about that passage of Scripture for just a moment. Jesus declares that he is the way. First and foremost, if our faith is in Christ Jesus, it's not in some other ruler of the world. It's not in some other religious leader of the world. So this discounts Muhammad. This discounts Buddha. This discounts Confucius. This discounts the Pope. This discounts any other human being who lays any kind of claim to salvation. Jesus says, he is the way. No one else. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then he makes that very clear. No one, no man comes to the Father except by me or through me. Now I want you to think about that. We're going to talk about parts of speech in just a minute, so get excited about that. But I want you to think about that. No one comes to the Father except by me or through me. In other words, he's like the gate. 
He's the gatekeeper. He, he's the one that allows us access or forbids us access. And so we're only getting to the Father. We're only going to obtain that eternal life in that home called heaven if we have the permission of the Christ, our King. So that's the solution. Uh, but now we've got some difficulty. Remember that we are sinners and Jesus is our salvation, but the difficulty is, as much as Jesus said, I am the way, there are indeed two ways, just not two ways to heaven. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14 tells us that there are two paths that we can take, two roads that we can travel from a spiritual standpoint. You can either travel a wide road that's very easy to travel because you really don't have to do anything to be on it. You just have to do what you want to do. You just have to be what you want to be. Live as you want to live. Walk down this wide path that most people in the world are going to travel down. You do have that choice, but remember that that path leads to destruction. That path leads to that place that burns with fire and brimstone, described in the book of Revelation as the second death. Now, on the other hand, there is another path. It is a narrow path. It is a less traveled path. Few will follow its way. And it's a difficult path to travel. Let's be clear. Christianity is the best life you can live. There is nothing better. There is nothing more hopeful. There is nothing more joyful. There is nothing more peaceful. But it is difficult. It is difficult. Paul would even tell Timothy in 2 Timothy, he would make, him, make sure he understood that all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus shall be persecuted. Folks, that's not an opinion. That's not a suggestion. It's a promise. If you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. Temptation will come your way. The struggles will sometimes be difficult. Doesn't mean we can't overcome the struggles. It doesn't mean we don't have those there and here who can help us overcome those struggles. But the struggles are difficult. They are hard. And so traveling that narrow path, although it be difficult, it's worth it. It's worth it because it leads to that life eternal that Jesus was talking about. So, here's what we're looking at. A couple of questions. Which path will we choose? Which path will you choose? And ultimately, when we talk about that, which vehicle will we take? When we think about walking down a path, that's exactly what we think about. We think about walking. Uh, but I didn't want to walk from Sebring to Titusville. I wanted to drive. I also wanted to drive in my air conditioning, but that's a different matter altogether. I wanted to drive because, A, I could get here quickly. I could get here easily. I could get here more safely. I could get here on time, and I could do so to do what I was scheduled to do. That's the church. It is the vehicle of our salvation. Let's take a look at this a little more closely. Let's consider the vehicle of our salvation in the form of the church itself. The vehicle of our salvation is Jesus' church. And I've capitalized Jesus because I don't want it to be anything else. I had a fellow just this morning. He's a fellow who was reared in a Christian home, but that home was maybe not the strongest home. Uh, it was a home where 
uh, at one point in time, he fell away from the church, and he's only recently started coming back. And, and this morning, he talked about, he said, when you get married, he said, is it okay to marry? And he listed some names, but what he was talking about were religious denominations. And I said, well, I said, the Bible may not forbid it, but it certainly doesn't advise it. And what I mean by that is Christians are to be equally yoked, right? Aren't we to have fellowship one with another and ask the question, how hard is it to get to heaven with a believing spouse versus an unbelieving spouse? Now, when Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians, he doesn't say that because you're married to an unbelieving spouse, you're, you're sinning, but he does talk about the difficulties that being in such a relationship would have. And so when this fellow asked me, he talked about these other ones. He said, because they call themselves Christians. And I said, you're exactly right. They call themselves Christians, but that doesn't make them Christ-like. Meaning the word Christian, Christ with the suffix I-A-N, means Christ-like. That's what the word Christian means. You know, we talk about children of God and the family of God. The Bible uses that terminology all the time. And yet the word we use the most is the term that the Bible uses the least. Only three times in the entire Bible, all of course in the New Testament, is the word Christian even used. And this is talking about not simply children of God, but children of God who are behaving in a Christ-like manner. If you're following a doctrine that's not of Christ, then how can you be a Christian? If you're following some man or some woman in place of Christ or in addition to Jesus, how can you be a Christian? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So when we talk about the church, it's real important that we understand we are talking about the Lord's church, the, the Christ's church, the church of Christ. You realize that's not a name. I don't know what y'all have on the sign out front, but the words church of Christ is not a name that is given to us in Scripture. It is a description of who and whose we are. And whereas at best there might be one name for the church, there are approximately 40 different descriptions for the church. The church of Christ, the church of the firstborn, uh, the body of Christ, the believers, the saints, the saved. Uh, it, the list goes on. So first and foremost, the vehicle of our salvation is Jesus' church. In Matthew chapter 16, turn in your Bibles there if I didn't give you a little enough time to get there. Matthew chapter 16 verses 13 through 18, you'll remember this passage where Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi and he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they say, said, some say John the baptizer and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Now listen to what Peter says in verse 16. Simon Peter answered saying, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. That prefix bar means son of. So blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock, and the rock he's referencing there is the rock of his faith, the confession of his faith that he just made, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Upon this rock I will build future tents, 
my church and the gates of Hades will not, will, will not overpower it. Now, notice what I emphasize there. Jesus said, I will build my church. Now, if you go to Acts chapter 2, you know what happened. In Acts chapter 2, we see the establishment of the church. This is the day of Pentecost. This is Peter and the other apostles, and they are speaking by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And they, Peter has just preached a sermon that concludes with the idea that all of you people who are gathered here to get today, you've been waiting for the Messiah to come for centuries, and oh, by the way, he just came. You didn't recognize him or didn't want to recognize him, and you killed him. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 36, a question is asked, a very important question. As he makes this statement, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Verse 37 reads, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? It's a good question. Peter said to them, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I want you to notice something. We read in the following verses of Scripture that some 3,000 people repented and were baptized into Jesus. Uh, they were baptized into what? Well, as we read on down in verse 46 and 47, day by day these people who were baptized continued with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding, now based on your translation, it'll say a couple of different things. One translation says, the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Well, what was the number? The number of who? Well, some of your translations say the Lord was adding to the church daily such as were being saved. Notice what happened. In Matthew 16, he said, I'm going to build my church. And evidently here on the day of Pentecost, we're seeing it being built. We're seeing it being made manifest in this world for the very first time. And those early believers that were added to the church were added in the same way that we're added today. When we are baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for the forgiveness of sins, we too are added to the body of Christ. We're added to the Lord's church. Now notice what I just said. I said two things as if they're one. The body of Christ and the church of Christ. That's because the Bible teaches that. The Bible teaches that it's not simply the Lord's church, and that's the only way we would refer to it. A different way of describing it, but the same exact entity, the same vehicle is described for us in Colossians 1 verses 18 and 24. Turn, if you will, there for just a moment, because I want you to take a look at this passage of Scripture. I've had people before ask me questions like, uh, do you believe that only members of the church of Christ will be saved? Now, I realize that's a loaded question, and you have to be careful how you answer that, not from a, 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 the standpoint of the simple truth of the Bible, but from the standpoint of their lack of understanding. Sometimes people ask questions to which they are not ready to hear the answer. It's our job to make sure they do that. One of the things we do in our Fishers of Men class that, that Doug mentioned a moment ago that I teach from place to place is we learn how to ask good questions and we learn how to give good answers because sometimes we're asked trick questions. Sometimes we're asked loaded questions. Sometimes we ask, we're asked questions that sometimes... Either way we go, we're gonna, we seemingly are going to cause a problem. And so 
we have to be mindful of that. But I've asked those same people before who say, will only members of the church of Christ go to heaven? And I asked them this question. I said, well, let me ask you a question first. Will only members of the body of Christ go to heaven? They have no problem with that. They're, oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, if I were to say yes to the first question, they would misunderstand because they don't often understand what the church of Christ is. But if I take them to Colossians 1 and verse 18, notice what it reads. He is also head of the body, comma, the church. That's kind of like saying the preacher, comma, Kevin, or the elder, comma, Doug. We're talking about the same thing. And so it says he, talking about Jesus, is also the head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Look at verse 24 of the same chapter. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church. Just a few verses apart, Paul tells the church at Colossae, that the church of Christ and the body of Christ is the same. One describes the called out of the Lord, called out of the darkness of the world into His marvelous light. The other describes us from a bodily standpoint, how He is the head of the body just like I have a head to my body. And by the way, my body wouldn't work too well without its head. Cut the head off and that's kind of the end of things. Well, that's kind of how it is with Jesus remove him from his body and the body is worth nothing. But when we talk about the body of Christ, we realize that we're all members of that body. Some are hands, some are fingers, some are eyes, some are ears, some are mouthpieces, but we're all a part of the body of which Jesus Christ is the head. So the vehicle of our salvation is not only Jesus Christ, but it's the body of Jesus Christ. Now, everybody turn to Ephesians 1. Everybody turn to Ephesians 1 because I'm going to ask you a question and I'm going to ask you to consider in your own mind the answer. Ephesians chapter 1. I want, I'm going to read to you the first 14 verses. And I'm going to read it in just one stride. And I'm going to do this for a reason. As we read through these 14 verses, I want you to do me a favor and I want you to pick out what you think is the most important word in the passage. Now, it's not a trick question, but I will tell you right up front, it's a question that has a lot of answers. All of it is the Word of God, and so it's really kind of hard to say that one part is more important than another. But I do want you to pick out what word you think is the most powerful, the strongest word for you, okay? And some of you will pick certain words, some of you will pick other words. I'm going to see if you're going to pick my word. All of us are good. It's a subjective question. But I want you to pay attention and pick out the word. Starting in chapter 1 and verse 1, the apostle Paul writes to the church at Ephesus and he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now here's where the question begins. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as He chose in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us to adoption as sons through Christ Jesus to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, 
to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed upon us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His kind intention, which He purposed in Him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. Now, what question did I ask? What word did you think was the most important? Some of you, as I look back on that, would have perhaps jumped right off the bat maybe in verse 2 and said grace or peace is very important. I would certainly agree with you. Uh, we talk about blessings and, and being holy and blameless. Those are certainly very important. Uh, verse 5 mentions adoption. How can that not be important? We're adopted into the family of God. Uh, we talk about in verse 7 redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Uh, in verse 9, we talk about things that are revealed to us, the mystery of His will. Uh, we think about uh, in verse uh, 10, uh, things in the heavens and on the earth, so things of a spiritual nature, things of above. We look at verse 11 and it talks about an inheritance. Uh, verse 13 talks about the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Man, there's like four words right there that are certainly very important. Which word do you think I chose? I chose that massively big two-letter word, in. In. I-N. One of the classes I teach at the Florida School of Preaching is English grammar. I teach it for two reasons. Number one, I enjoy it. Number two, nobody else wants it. So I teach English grammar. And I do so probably because Camille, who knew my dad, she knows he was an English nut as well. He liked English and he was an expert in the Greek. An amazing scholar. Well, the word in is a preposition. And a preposition is a word, it's one of the eight parts of speech that help us to know location or relationship. And people know in the past when my dad was alive, they would ask him this question only because they knew what he was going to ask because other people had told him to ask it. But it didn't matter what class he was in. He could be teaching a Greek class. He could be teaching Revelation. But if somebody would just simply say, Brother Max, uh, could, could you explain what a preposition is? Oh, he'd stop and explain it in a heartbeat. And he'd say, here's what a preposition is, okay? He would say, my hand is over... And I call this a podium. I'm standing in the pulpit. But my dad used to call this the lectern. And with a wonderful southern accent, he called it the lectern. 
And so he would say, my hand is over the lectern. My hand is beside the lectern. My hand is in the lectern. My hand is around the lectern. And everybody would just get a kick because of how he was using the word lectern. But the key is he was using prepositions. Whether I'm talking about above, in, beside, around, over, under, these are words that use, talk about relationship. And I want you to notice verse 3 that starts off this passage of Scripture by using this. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord and Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Brethren, make sure you understand that. There are no spiritual blessings outside of Christ. Think about that. There are no spiritual blessings outside of Christ. Somebody says, well, no, no, Kevin, I don't agree with that. I mean, my wife had a baby the other day. That's a great blessing. That is a great blessing. That's not a spiritual blessing. That's a physical blessing. Well, somebody bought me lunch today. Hey, that's a blessing too. Give thanks for your blessing. That's not a spiritual blessing. The spiritual blessings are all those things he just mentioned. Redemption, that's not found outside of Christ. Uh, forgiveness of sins, that's not found outside of Christ. Adoption, inheritance in the family of God, things that are not found outside of Christ. Grace, mercy, peace, these concepts that do not exist outside of Christ. They're outside of the vehicle of our salvation. If you want those blessings, and if you want the eternal life that those blessings will yield, you've got to get in the vehicle. But you don't get in by yourself. You're added to the vehicle. You're allowed entrance to that vehicle by Jesus Christ himself. Take a look at another consideration. When we talk about the vehicle of our salvation as the church or the body of Christ, we have to remember there is only one. I not only take you back to the point where Jesus said, Upon this rock I will build my church, but I take you forward to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Something that is just as clear as clear can be, and yet so many people either disregard it or ignore it altogether. Paul would say, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called, and one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Did you hear that? Did you hear how myopic my God is? How singular of thought my God is? What narrow vision my God is? My brother is an ophthalmologist, an eye surgeon, and he's one of the best in the land. And when I use that word myopic, we talk about somebody who kind of has tunnel vision. They can only see one thing. And see, the religious world, they don't, they don't see this. They don't want to see this. So it's very hard for them to accept passages like verse 4. There is one body, one spirit. Uh, verse 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. 
there are things that the world accepts. If they lay claim to Christ, they'll usually accept one God, one, one Son, one Lord, in other words, one Spirit. They maybe don't have a problem with that. They, they may not have too much of a problem with you talking about one faith, although their idea of faith is multifaceted. And, and Jesus' faith, the faith of the Bible, is once again God's way or no way. And then, of course, when you talk about one baptism, well, there they really have a, a difficult time. Why? Because if you look up the Bible or look up the definition of baptism in the dictionary, you'll find a, a sprinkling, a pouring, an immersion, or any activity performed with water. In this day and age, people say you don't even need the water anymore. But the Bible says there's one baptism. And by the time the New Testament faith came along, there was one. It was by immersion in water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, in order to be washed clean of sins. There's no salvation before you get in the car, and the point of baptism is that point where you pass through the threshold of the doorway of that car, of that vehicle of our salvation. So notice that there's just one. There are a lot of cars on the road today. I passed a lot of cars. Maybe I should say a lot of cars passed me on the way here. But when it comes to vehicles that will get us to heaven, there's only one. And that's the church or the body of Jesus Christ. Turn, if you will, to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verses 4 and 5. Romans chapter 12, verses 4 and 5. Paul says to the church at Rome, he says, For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Now what this is saying is what we alluded to earlier. This idea that we have a lot of body parts in our physical bodies. And how many of us would want to do without any of them? You know, the people talk about sometimes, well, they say the eyes are very important and the ears are very important, the mouth's very important, my toes are not so important, my little toe's just not important at all. Well, ask them, say, can I cut it off? By the way, I would encourage you not to follow through with actually doing it. But guess what? I bet those people who are so cavalier about that little toe don't want to lose that little toe. People who go in and have to have their appendix out, they realize they may need to do it in order to save the body, but they don't even want to go into that. And that's something that's relatively routine these days. Our body is precious to us, and the body of Christ is precious to him. And when Jesus gave his blood to purchase it, he gave value to all of it. And so whether you're the eyes or the nose or the ears or whatever you are, you are valuable. I heard a man preach a funeral pretty soon after we moved to Florida in Sebring. It's a little old lady passed away. I didn't know her personally. But let's just say that her name was Sue Hill. He got up the morning of the funeral and, and the service began and we had sang a song or two and he got up and he was about to talk about Sue Hill. And he starts off by saying, Sue Hill was a little toe. Strangest way to ever begin a funeral I have ever heard of in my life. But he just, instead of saying she was a lovely lady and she was a wonderful lady and we all were blessed by her presence, she, he starts off and says, Sue Hill was a little toe. And what he was saying was, she was quiet, 
She was unassuming. She was humble. She was kind. And she was important. Just like our little toe is important to us, she was important to the body of Christ. She was a servant. And although she wasn't in the limelight, she didn't stand behind podiums and speak to large crowds of people. She was someone who was necessary. She was someone who is important. Every member of the body of Christ is important. This concept is continued in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 through 27, a longer passage of Scripture that I give you for your notes and for you to go back and read later. But it's a passage of Scripture that gives off the idea once again how very important every single member of the body is. We don't have the right to say, I'm not important because, or I'm not important because. If you're a member of the body of Christ, you were taken out of the darkness of the sin of this world and you were transformed and translated and transferred into the body of light in the majesty of the Lord. You were put in the vehicle that is the only way you can go to heaven. God loves us. Jesus died for us. And the Spirit has given us the word that can save us. We simply have to study it. Challenge. What is our challenge? Well, let's take a look at some very quick passages of Scripture. We're going to go to Acts chapter 1 and verse 14. Acts chapter 1 and verse 14. In Luke's account, we remember that there were people who were present at the ascension of Jesus and in the early days after that ascension. In verse 14, we read, These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Listen to what it said. They were of one mind, those disciples. Turn back to Acts chapter 2, verses 46 and 47, where we read, As the church is beginning once again, day by day, continuing with one mind, in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Think about that passage of Scripture. Think about chapter 4 and verse 32, Acts 4 and verse 32, that reads, The congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. Are you noticing a pattern? A pattern that existed just before the establishment of the church with the disciples of Christ and continued into its establishment and its earliest times with those who were baptized into Christ? They were of one mind. Take a look at Romans chapter 12, verse 16. Romans chapter 12 and verse 16. Paul would say to the church at Rome, he would say, be of the same mind one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Now, one of the things that Paul is doing for us there is he's not only giving the commandment that we need to be like-minded, that we need to be of one mind in the faith of the Word of God, but he's also explaining to us why we might not be, why we might have trouble doing that. And that's when self gets in the way. Notice what he said. Right after he says, be of the same mind toward one another, he says, do not be haughty or arrogant in mind, but associate with the lowly or the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. 
Have you ever heard of someone who is wise in his own eyes? That's what he's talking about here. Someone who thinks he knows better than somebody else. I remember seeing this button one time when I was a kid. Uh, just so you'll know, Camille, this was Gary Wake's button. But I remember it to this day. It was a button he'd wear and he'd say, people who think they know it all really annoy those of us who do. Well, he was being funny. But some people have that attitude and some people are being serious. Some people think that they do know it all. That they are the end-all, be-all of knowledge and wisdom and matters of the Spirit. God says, humble yourselves. If you want to be of one mind, if you want to be unified in the body, which is the church of Christ, then you have to humble yourself. Exalt Jesus in your lives. And let us commonly together exalt him in our lives. And then we'll find it much easier to come together as one. Take a look at chapter 15 and verse 5. Chapter 15 and verse 5 of the book of Romans. Paul says, Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. You know, we, you would think that this would be something that was easy to do. But then we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10 and we realize this congregation didn't exist long at all before they were all kinds of divided. And if you take a look at the book of 1 Corinthians, you'll see a book of rebuke. Almost chapter after chapter after chapter, Paul's kind of having to get on to them by the inspiration of God because they're being selfish. They're being prideful. They're thinking of nothing but what each individual person wants. They were not considering others before themselves, and they certainly were not considering the whole or the entirety of the family of God before they considered themselves. This is the body of Christ we're talking about. But all they could see was themselves. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 10, right off the bat, 10 verses into the book, right after his introductions, and those formalities are out of the way, he says to them, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there may be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Brethren, if every single one of us in this room does things our own way, that there, there's no way we're going to be able to obey that command. There is no way that we will ever be able to come together. It would be like going to a library and picking out any hundred books that are on the shelves and seeing if they all say the same thing. They don't. They were written by different authors at different times for different purposes, and they all say different things. But if we can unite upon one thing, if we can unite upon the Word of God, the source of all spiritual information and the source of our instructions on how to get in that vehicle and go to heaven, then we'll be able to do it. But we've got to be united on that one, one source. The question is always asked. I don't know if everybody gets asked this question, but if you're listening carefully, you probably do. People ask the question all the time. If there is only one word of God, and I'm not talking about translations, I'm talking about the word of God. If there is only one Bible, why are there so many religions in the world? 
who believe in everything under the sun and some things that are not. If there's only one word of God, why are there so many religions? That's because all of those religions, all of them, save one, has decided, I want to change the word here. I want to add something here. I want to take something away here. I want to modify something here. Only if we are united on that word of God and we are happy and willing and satisfied to accept it as it is given to us without changing or modifying it because of our selfish desires, then and only then can we together be united upon the truth that can save us in the end. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, reads, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Think about that letter that Paul wrote to the church at Philippi. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the vehicle. Uh, in, worthy of that good news that will allow you access into the eternal kingdom. So that whether he saw him again or he didn't see him again, he would hear that good news that they were standing firm. Let me tell you something. It's very encouraging to work with a congregation, move on to another congregation, and hear good things about that previous congregation. Hear how they're growing. Hear how they're improving. Hear how they're learning. Hear how they're spreading the gospel. They're evangelizing in the area around them and they're growing in, in, in number, not only physically but spiritually. Uh, that's good news indeed. But I've also been in situations where I've heard of problems taking place. Congregations where Sherry and I have been members who have gone through difficult times, maybe even through division. And I pray that for no congregation of the body of Christ. Because it's not what God wants. What God wants is for us to be one. One together in Him. In Him. Because there is no oneness with God outside of the vehicle of our salvation. That fellowship is only found in it. I want you to consider something for just a second. I want you to consider another very famous vehicle. It was called the ark. You ever heard of that? Something that a guy by the name of Noah built. His wife, Joan, helped him build it. It'll process in a minute. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. They all had wives. Eight people, the Bible teaches us, went on board that ark. And the very waters that saved them in the flood were the very waters that condemned the rest of the world. Now, I'm going to suggest something to you just to put something into perspective. How many people died in the flood? We do not know. I do not know but people who are way smarter than I am who took the genealogical information and the chronological information that is available to us in scriptures, they have counted some of that up. They suggest that there were not thousands of people on the earth, not even hundreds of thousands of people on the earth. 
listen to me, brethren, not even millions with an M, but they suggest that at the rate those people were having children and they were having children as long as they were living and as many kids as they were having, by the time Noah came on the earth, that there were billions with a B on planet earth. And if that's correct, doesn't matter whether there's 10 or 10 billion, however many people were on the earth, the Bible says that the thoughts of their hearts were only evil continually. They were locked out of the vehicle of salvation at that moment in time. Noah was locked in the vehicle of salvation. Those outside of the ark died. Those inside of the ark lived. That is the church for us today. If you're outside of the body of Christ, if you're outside of the Lord's church, if you're outside of the family of God, there is no salvation for the sinner. So if you are old enough to be held accountable for your sin and you're outside the vehicle of your salvation, brethren, I'm suggesting to those who are here tonight who are not members of the body of Christ, I'm suggesting to you, think very seriously about how much you need to respond to the gospel call so that the Lord can place you in that vehicle so that it can take you to heaven. If you are a member of the body of Christ, don't get out. God doesn't make you get in it, and he doesn't make you stay in it. You'll always be a part of the family. You'll always be a part of the body. But whether you decide to freely get out of the vehicle of salvation, walk away from the Lord and his church, that's up to you. Because God always gives each and every one of us the freedom to choose our moral path. But don't get out. If you do, do like one lady did this morning in Sebring. She said, you know, it, it took the unconditional love of some members of the church to remind me that I can't go too far and not return. All I need to do is repent. All I need to do is change. All I need to do is get back on that difficult path that's worth the journey and be saved in the end. That's what we're saying to you tonight. If there is a need for you to respond to the gospel because you need to repent of sins and get back on track to make sure that you're calling an election, that your destination is sure, then do that. And if you can need prayers for other reasons, we have all kinds of struggles we face today. Family struggles, friendship struggles, employment struggles, pandemic struggles, uh, financial struggles, cost of gas struggles. We got all kinds of struggles in this world today. Maybe some of those struggles seem to be piling up in your life and maybe we can help you. We sure, for sure, want to be able to sit down and pray with you, but realize also that sometimes there may be other ways that we can help as well, and we certainly want to do that. Tonight, as we offer the invitation of Jesus, if there's any way that we can help you, please simply let us know how we can. All together, we stand and sing. <clears throat>
Kevin, we appreciate that message. Uh, I know I'm speaking for most of you, or all of you. We're glad your vehicle brought you over here this evening. I have just a few reminders. The senior adult group will be uh, going to the Fujiyama Steak and Seafood House this Thursday. The church van will be leaving the building about 1030. If you'd like to go, you're invited. Please just sign the list in the foyer. Also, I want to remind you about Jean Eggie's burial service, which will be on Wednesday, June 15th at 9.30 a.m. It will take place at the Cape Canaveral National Cemetery, which is just north of Mims on US-1. Uh, there will be military honors for him and a caisson carriage. If you're going, you need to be there a little early to get lined up. And I have one other addition to our sick list that we mentioned this morning. Brenda Scott was here this morning. Her health is really declining. And someone questioned whether or not she should be here this morning because of her health. And she responded, I needed to hear one more sermon. I think that's amazing. Please keep her in your prayers. Please pray for all those on our sick list. Thank you. Okay, for our closing song, we're going to sing Sowing the Seed of the Kingdom. And my goodness, I don't know how many years it's been since I've led this. I know the chorus. <laughs> I don't remember how to start it. <laughs> Somebody give me a hint. Father in heaven, we 
thank you for today and everything you've given to us. We're grateful, Father, for the ability to come here and be around friends and family. Uh, we're grateful for the message this evening, Father, and the way of action and the way of life, the way of hope that your word brings us. And we're thankful for your son, and in his name we pray, amen.